You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would, please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew 26, we're going to read beginning at verse 47. We will read down to verse 56. This morning, setting our attention on verses 47 through 50. Tonight, we'll come back and look at verses 51 through 56. But let's read beginning at verse 47 and read the entire section. Remember verse 46, get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Therefore, how will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time we have now to turn our attention to your word. We pray for your blessing upon it. We have gathered because we're in need of this that you've ordained for the feeding of your sheep and the strengthening of your church and for the salvation of the lost. You've ordained that as the Word of God is preached, souls are cared for and souls are rescued. And so we ask that you, Your power, Lord, would be on display in this next hour, both in and through the act of preaching and in and through the worship of listening. Strengthen us, Lord, to give you our full attention. This, this next hour is weighty. When your word goes forth, eternity is before us. Accountability is a reality for what we hear. And we know there's a great enemy of our souls who seeks to steal the seed of the word of God away from us. And so would you strengthen us, Lord, to, to lock in, to give you our full attention as we listen. We will thank you for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. God's glory is never diminished by our sins. Our sins are grievous. Our sins are not in accordance with the glory of God. They don't glorify God. Our sins don't tell the truth about God in His great name. But God's glory is infinite and it is fixed. We don't add to His glory. We don't in any way take from His glory, God is always completely, perfectly glorious. And His glory, therefore, is never diminished by the darkness of our sins. In fact, it's often the case that when our sins are at their darkest, God's omnipotence shines most brightly. The Bible is the record of that. The Bible is the record of the truth that nothing defeats the decrees of God. Not anything that we might do that we didn't plan on 
nothing like that would ever defeat what God has ordained. And certainly, when little man, small man makes his plans, takes his counsels together against God and his anointed, those plans will never succeed. Nothing defeats God's decrees. There are few things darker than betrayal. There are few things darker than when sinful people conspire together to do something harmful to someone who is good. Even among thieves, even among sinners, there's the recognition that betrayal and conspiracy are worthless acts. How much more when the one who is betrayed and the one who is conspired against is perfectly good? How much more heinous is betrayal and conspiracy when the one being betrayed and the one being conspired against is the Son of God. These are two things emphasized in Matthew's account of the betrayal of Jesus. One, the outrageous nature of this act of betrayal. Throughout this account, it is highlighted, if you're paying attention, it is emphasized, this is an outrageous thing that we're witnessing. But at the very same time, what is emphasized is the majesty and the glory of Christ. The darkness of man's sins, the glory, the beauty of God's Son. What has been planned by Judas is now executed by Judas. He was seeking an opportunity to turn Jesus over to the wicked Jewish religious leaders without much notice, without much attention being drawn to it, and now he has found his opportunity. The hour of darkness has come. Luke 22, verse 53, Our Lord said, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The moment has arrived, a moment, as we heard in our Scripture reading this morning, prophesied in the Old Testament. And we look at that moment today, both this morning and this evening. So we look at Judas's heinous act of betraying Jesus, and today we see the glory of Christ in the midst of that great darkness. Just one main point for this morning's sermon, that is the betrayal. The betrayal, verses 47 through 50. The betrayal. Let's read it again, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Look, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi! and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Matthew emphasizes that Judas arrived just as Jesus was speaking. Verse 47, while he was still speaking. What was he saying? Verse 46, get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And as those words are coming out of his mouth, Judas is making his way to Christ. The outrageous nature of this betrayal is heard in Matthew's words, Judas, one of the twelve. You need to hear that phrase, one of the twelve, correctly, because Matthew is not letting you know that Judas was one of the disciples. We already know that. If you're paying attention at all to this narrative from the first chapter of Matthew until now, you already know who Judas Iscariot is. That's not the significance of Matthew's words. No, the significance is the outrageous nature of what he's doing. This is one of the twelve. But at the very same time, the glory of Jesus is on display because this is the fulfillment of what Christ said back in verse 21. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of the twelve will betray me. Jesus is not 
turned over for arrest and crucifixion by someone outside the camp of his friends. It's not even out of that larger group of disciples that followed him around that this betrayal has come. No, right in the midst of the closest circle of his men comes the one who betrays him. One of his closest friends from the standpoint of how Jesus had treated these men has now come to do him harm. What a privilege Judas had been given prior to this betrayal. You know, in our own day, you can see it all around us, how people long to know and to be around famous people. Sadly, this is even a blight, I believe, on the Lord's church, how we sort of fawn over famous people, forgetting they're just people with a soul just like you, in need of a Savior just like you, in need of shepherding just like you, how we long to be around famous people. And in Christ's day, in Paul's day, how people would boast about the rabbi whose name their training was associated with, even even in Christ's day, who your teacher was could be a mark of great honor. When Paul was arrested at the temple in Jerusalem, the crowd is seeking to kill him and he voices a defense of himself. He understands this. He understands how important privilege tutelage was in the eyes of the Jews because he makes use of the name of the man who was his teacher. Acts 22 verse 1, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He knew that it would matter to them that he had been a disciple of Gamaliel. So it's a great privilege to be trained by a famous great teacher. Well, the twelve had the most privileged training. They've been trained by the Messiah. They've been trained by the Son of God. No group of men has ever been trained by anyone greater. No group of men has ever been more perfectly loved and cared for by their teacher. And yet here is one of the twelve arriving to destroy his teacher. It is despicable. It is outrageous. The ones who accompany him also represent something outrageous. It comes with a large crowd, Matthew tells us. Judas, one of the twelve, came up and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. This is an outrageous alliance. It's a strange alliance. The crowd that has come to arrest Jesus reminds us that sinful hatred makes for strange friendships. When people can't get along on any other basis, it's amazing how they can get together when it comes to their common hatred. That's what we have here. Looking at all of the evidence from the Gospel accounts, it seems that the crowd was made up of the following. You have the temple police. You have the Jewish religious leaders themselves. Not to say that the entire Sanhedrin came, but representatives from that body of leaders, they were present. Luke 22 verse 52 says, Then Jesus said, to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders. So you have the clergy, you have lay leadership, you have the temple police. Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Along with them were Roman soldiers. John chapter 18, verse 3 says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, speron is the Greek word translated band of soldiers, it's, a, it's the word for cohort. 
Judas having procured a cohort and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. That's Roman military language. A complete cohort would have been somewhere around 600 soldiers. I don't know if an entire cohort was there, perhaps just a dispatch from that cohort, but the point is you have a Roman military presence. Temple police, chief priests, elders of the people, Roman military presence. And then you have Judas, one of Christ's own men. He has arranged this, but he's not arranging this on his own. He arranges this in conjunction with the chief priests and elders of the people. So you have this strange threefold cord that has been woven together in the interest of destroying Jesus. The Jews, the Romans, and one of Christ's own men. What does that speak of? What does that what, what lesson is communicated in this? It speaks to the attitudes and the motivations that exist in lost people. Never forget that you and I, in our lost condition, were self-worshippers. That is what is true of all lost humanity. I'm not saying we don't have our gods, but I'm saying at the center of our worldview is our self. This is one of the fundamental things that changes when the Lord saves a person. They go from living their lives with themselves at the center of the picture to Christ at the center of the picture. And then beyond Christ, now others enter into the next closest circle of that picture. And then yourself is spent on behalf of Christ and others. This is what salvation produces. But until there's salvation, man is always at the center of his motivations. What that means is sinners are willing to use each other for their own ends. The Jews don't like the Romans, but the Romans can come along in terms of a military presence to achieve our ends. The Romans don't like the Jews, but they'll come alongside them because they have some motivation for doing that. And then neither the Jews, the Jewish leaders, nor the Romans cared about Jesus or one of his disciples. But they'll make use of one of Christ's disciples to achieve their end. What are the motivations at work in this outrageous alliance? Well, on the part of the Jewish religious leaders, it's obvious they want to destroy Jesus, but they also want to shield themselves from the anger of the multitudes as they do that. They don't want some sort of uprising on behalf of Jesus. This is why they arranged with Judas to do something that was out of the public sight, that was not going to get, gather much attention. This is why they have paid Judas to do what he's doing. They want to involve the Romans. Why would you allow Judas to call for this dispatch of Roman soldiers to join you? Because if they involve the Romans, then maybe it will appear that the Romans have their own concerns about Jesus. Maybe he's a threat to Roman authority. And in that case, the Jewish leaders could escape blame for what they've planned to do. It's not just about us. Look, even Rome is involved in this. This man is a threat, not just to us, but to Roman authority. And as we'll see in Christ's trials, they actually try to make that case that Jesus is somehow a threat to Caesar. But they also need Roman involvement eventually for Christ's execution. The Jews don't have the authority to execute someone they arrest. That would have to fall to the Romans. So this is what motivates the Jews to involve the Romans. What motivates the Romans to get involved? Why would they answer Judas when he goes to procure a cohort? Why would such a force be sent? Well, because they have their motivation, that is to avoid Jewish drama. Their motivation is to keep the peace. So whoever would have granted permission for this dispatch of soldiers, maybe it was Pilate, he's not motivated by hate for Jesus like the Jews were doesn't care about Jesus. He doesn't care about Jesus' disciples. But he's willing to assist because 
The Romans are callous to anything but their own interests. They don't even care if this is going to be justice or injustice. They don't care whether Jesus is innocent or guilty. They don't care about any of that. Again, this will be demonstrated at Christ's trials. Pilate doesn't really care that Jesus is innocent. He's going to pronounce Jesus innocent, but he's going to go along with it anyway. Why? Because he doesn't want drama. He doesn't want some sort of uprising. And history tells us that there have already been multiple rebellions that Pilate is somehow associated with. So he's already on thin ice with Tiberius Caesar. He does not want there to be any other sort of drama that gets him in more trouble. The Jews will use the Romans. The Romans will help the Jews, but for their own reasons. And then what about Judas? What is his motivation? The only motivation given to us in Scripture is greed. He does what he does for money. Perhaps also he is bitter. Maybe he is disillusioned what he expected in terms of what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. Jesus isn't matching his view. Jesus has rebuked Judas in very clear ways in recent days. Maybe there's some bitterness that has arisen over that in his heart. What we know for sure is that he was a man full of greed. And what we also know is he has given himself over to evil to an extent that now he is possessed by Satan himself as he carries out this act. Luke 22 verse 3 makes that clear. Satan entered Judas as he goes to carry out this outrageous deed. What do we see in how they go to arrest Jesus? While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve who came up, one of the twelve came up, and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Why would such a large crowd be necessary to arrest one man? Surrounded by 11 common men. He's not even surrounded by 11 soldiers. Uh, 10, because Judas is missing. So I'm sorry, 11, that's right, 11. Why, when you have fishermen surrounding Jesus, do you send such a force? And it seems clear they only really plan to arrest Jesus That's why Judas gives a sign. He's going to identify the one they're really after. Want to make sure he doesn't get away. Want to make sure he doesn't flee. But I mean, they could have said, we'll just gather them all up at once. We'll just surround them and arrest them all. But no, they want one. Large crowd. Some commentators think, when you compare all the gospel accounts, there could have been as many as a thousand people there. John MacArthur said, when all four gospel accounts are compared... It becomes evident that the total number of men who came with Judas to the garden may have been as high as a thousand. Why do you send a thousand armed people to arrest one man? Because they're afraid of him. The crowd fears him. Clearly, there is an unintentional, sort of a backhanded way of paying homage to the one they're arresting because they... They fear Him. The the very force with which they come says they stand in awe of Him. Has no other explanation given the fact that Jesus has never behaved in a way that would have ever indicated violence. Even if you talk about when He cleansed the temple twice and drives out the money changers and turns over the tables, He never harmed a person in all of that, ever. Verse 55, in fact, Jesus notes this, At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? What have I done that would call for this kind of show of force? The answer is nothing, except they fear Him. I want you to note this in your mind. Wicked people often treat righteousness in a way that is aggressive because they fear righteousness. The world in its sin does not just hate Christ, it fears Christ. Our Lord, victorious, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. Now His presence is known on earth in and through His church, His people. And to this day, wickedness is aggressive when it comes to righteousness. Why? Because there's a fear operating in that aggressiveness. An unintentional, backhanded paying of homage 
to what it seeks to destroy because there's an internal fear associated with its desire to destroy. That fear speaks volumes about the ones who seek to destroy it. It speaks of the instinctive knowledge of their weakness. It speaks of the instinctive knowledge of their guilt. It speaks of the instinctive knowledge of the fear of judgment. We cannot afford for Christ to rule and reign because we don't belong to what He represents. There's this knowledge, and therefore there's the desire to destroy, and it's aggressive in nature. The fear of Christ's yoke. We don't want this man to rule over us. And so as a result, the fear of that scepter, the fear of that ruler, the fear of that authority, the fear of that submission to him drives its aggression. The crowd fears him. The second thing this large force says is that this crowd doesn't care about justice. So I said a moment ago, what has Jesus done to be arrested like this? It's what he says in verse 55. You come out like you're coming out against a robber. Even if you, if you deny the signs, if you deny the miracles, if you don't listen to his message, if you say, we don't believe he's the Messiah, we don't believe he's the Son of God, therefore he does not have the rights over the temple that he claims that he has. So he violated our law by driving out people from the areas of the temple that didn't belong in anyway. And he addresses the corruption that was on display there. Even if you want to address that, it would not call for this kind of an arrest at night under the secret of darkness with an army? You come with an army to arrest a guy who turned over tables? What does this say? It says that the force doesn't match the accusation. There's no justice here, which gives us a preview of what his trials are going to be like. There will be no honesty in those trials. Pilate recognized the, the innocence of Jesus, the injustice of the trials. John 18, verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. John 19, verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. John 19, verse 6, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times. This man is not guilty. Paul in a synagogue sermon in Antioch of Pisidia said the same. Acts 13, verse 28, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. This is not just fear, this is injustice. And the very way they arrest him indicates already how they're going to treat him in his trials. This is a verdict that has already been determined. He must be destroyed. He must die. Now they're looking to justify what they're going to do by walking through a necessary process. And it begins with his arrest. The, the, the size of the force and the way that it's, con that it's constituted says this is injustice in action. And again, it carries on to our own day. Sinners looking to rid themselves of Jesus are more than willing to be dishonest about what really motivates them. The Jews will say, He violated our laws. And they'll say to the Romans, He's a threat to your authority. And they know better. They know better in both cases. They just hate Him. They want to kill Him. They want to get rid of Him. You see the same down to the individual level to our own day. People make all sorts of arguments about why they reject the gospel. They try to say it's a problem in the realm of reason. It's a problem in the realm of logic. Why will they not just be honest about what is going on in their hearts? And that is, we have no appetite for it. 
You can demonstrate to me it is true and put it right before my eyes, and I don't want it. That's the truth. That's the truth. Sinners willing to lie. Sinners willing to twist and distort facts and truth to avoid what sinners want to avoid. And that is the rule, the authority, the lordship of God over their lives, which is known in His Son. So this scene puts into clear view the fear of men, the lack of character that is found in these men, the willingness to act with deception, the pragmatic political considerations that are driving them as they come to get Jesus. They are judging themselves even as they pretend to be His judges. This is an outrageous alliance. Second, as we're looking at the betrayal, the outrageous alliance. Now notice the outrageous sign. Verse 48. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign. Saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one seizing. I know you've thought about this. Of all the ways that Judas could have identified Jesus, he chose to betray him with a kiss. An act that's supposed to talk, you know, indicate friendship. Even, even to this day, there are places in our world, this is how people greet one another when there's friendship with a kiss. This was an act meant to speak of friendship, an act meant to speak of affection. But coming from Judas, it was a sign meant to destroy. It mocked Jesus. It was a mockery. R.C. Sproul said this, in the ancient Jewish world, there were certain protocols that were observed in the rabbi-student relationship, and these rules were never to be disobeyed. One of those rules was this, if ever a rabbi met one of his students on the street, the rabbi was to speak first, extending his greetings to, the, to his student, because the student was not above the master. It was considered exceedingly rude, presumptuous, and arrogant for a student to speak to his rabbi before the rabbi spoke to him. The rabbi was supposed to initiate the greeting. Sproul says, in the midst of his treachery, Judas violated this fundamental rule of courtesy. Close quote. Now, whether our Lord required that of his disciples in their intimate settings, I think is highly in doubt. But there's no doubt this was a public standard. Remember, Jesus even taught his disciples a student is not above his master. I mean, this was something commonly understood in the relationships of teacher and student in this day. So even though Jesus might not have required that of his men, don't greet me first, I'll greet you first and all the rest, by the standards in place in that world, by the standards of those watching this and witnessing this, Judas publicly treated Jesus as his equal. Treated him with, in a way that was disrespectful, with disdain. Those watching saw a student greet his master, his supposed master, in a way that was dishonoring. When disdain arrives, respect always goes with it. Where there's hatred, there is no respect. How many people who need Jesus treat the things of Christ as if they're worthless? How many people who need Jesus do nothing to hide their disrespect toward the Lord, toward His church, toward His people? Treating the Lord's church and His people as if they have no real worth I'm talking now about the ascended Christ who is confronting this world through the preaching of the gospel and the same sort of disdain and disrespect and dishonor still exists. What was displayed toward Christ is now displayed toward Christ in His church. You just need to know that when that happens, when there is this disdain and disrespect and dishonor, it says nothing about the worth of Christ. It says nothing about the worth of the gospel. It says nothing about the worth of the church. It says everything about the contemptible character of the person who carries out the disrespect. It is Judas's contemptible nature on display 
as he betrays his Lord with a kiss. An outrageous sign. At the same time, it was an outrageous pretense. Because he does more than dishonor Jesus, he's dishonest. He's dishonest, verse 49. Greetings, Rabbi. And kissed him. Judas meets him with a feigned greeting of joy. Hail, Rabbi. Title of respect, Rabbi, teacher. Judas playing the part of a disciple even as he betrays his master. This is what will always characterize apostates. They are associated with Jesus. They're identified with Jesus. Perhaps even for a time they try to convince themselves that they are disciples of Jesus. But it is a veneer. It is external. It's not real. What is real is what goes on in their heart. And eventually the veneer is removed. And what comes out is unbelief. What comes out is the unregenerate nature. What comes out is the true state of the man or woman. Judas is a devil. He's a hypocrite. He's a liar. He's a thief. He is a wicked pretender. And he pretends to the very end. Hail, Rabbi. Greets him with a kiss. Somehow though, Judas doesn't have the spiritual sense to know that Jesus has known what He is and who He is all along. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and all the disciples begin to say, it's not me, is it? Rabbi, please say it's not me. Judas joined right along. It's not me, is it? As if you're fooling the Son of God. Jesus had told them early on He knew about the one who would betray him, John 6, 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. John 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He's saying this from the beginning. And yet Judas goes on pretending. Goes on pretending plays the role all the way to the finish. An outrageous alliance. An outrageous sign. An outrageous pretense. Which all added up, verse 50, to an outrageous waste of time. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they laid hands on Jesus and seized Him. The darkness of man's sins never diminished the glory of God. Despite all these outrageous elements, the glory of Jesus is on display. What do you see in our Lord in verse 50? You see patient kindness. He knows exactly what and who Judas is when He walks up and gives Him a kiss. And yet Jesus doesn't curse Him. Jesus doesn't call him names. Jesus calls him friend. Friend, do what you've come for. This is not the word for a close friend. It is a, it is a kind word. It's an, an open-hearted word. It's a polite word. But it's not a word used for a close friend. Hetairos is the word. It amounts to addressing someone as an acquaintance. If you met someone for the first time and used the English word friend, it would have that same sort of meaning, the Greek word chosen here. You've met someone, you know them in a superficial sort of way, but they're not your close friend. Judas does not know Jesus, but Jesus knows Judas perfectly. And so he uses this word. It's Christ making clear that He knows who Judas is. You call me rabbi, you would pretend to be my friend with your kiss, but you don't know me. This word is found only in Matthew in the New Testament. The two other times that you find this word used, word translated friend in verse 50, in both cases it's not in a positive context. 
Matthew 20, verse 8, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Christ giving a parable to teach lessons, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend... I'm doing you no wrong. So you, have, you have these men who've just begun to work for him. Some have worked all day, but they're, they're day laborers. They're not his close friends. And they're complaining, feeling like they've been mistreated. And the way the owner of the field responds is, friend, I've done you no harm. Same word. Matthew 22, verse 10, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they had found, both bad and good. Now talking about the wedding feast and inviting the outsiders and those who were first invited, many will be on the outside, etc. He says, so the wedding hall was filled with guests, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. That's the word that Jesus is using here. Friend. Acquaintance. Someone who knows me, but you don't know me as a friend. You see this polite, you see this patient kindness on the part of Christ. You also see this powerful calmness when our Lord says, do what you have come for. It amounts to saying, get on with it. Dispense with the kisses and the greetings and the show. Let's do what you've come here to do. A man whom Jesus had loved perfectly now returns that love with an act of hatred. Still hasn't changed. This is the betrayer. This is the one that would have been better for him to have never been born. But you do know the world is full of people with a very similar kind of character and a very similar kind of behavior. Still operating against Christ and His truth. Still hating Christ as He's represented in His people. It is not unusual for the greatest enemies of Christ's people to be those in whom we've invested the most. Jesus had loved Judas perfectly, yet Judas treats Jesus like this. How many people after hours of counseling, hours of personal investment, turn on the very ones who have expended themselves to give them help. How many people have been given in love truthful words, but they hate the words they're given, and so they turn and with hateful condemnation and accusation, almost always behind their backs, return the love they've received. They return with hatred, bitterness, slander, accusation. What's going on? They are displaying the character of Judas even though they don't have his name. You're not named Judas, but you're acting like a Judas. R.C. Sproul again said this, he said, we see this practice all the way through sacred Scripture. The greatest and most damaging enemies of the righteous are often the ones closest to them. Friends, relatives, or disciples. The same is true in church history. The heroes of Christendom have often been killed by arrows in their backs, struck down by those they least suspected. I want you to understand, I don't make this application this morning to make you hesitant to invest in other people. I don't share this to make you suspicious of those whom you're ministering to. In fact, I'm not even talking to those who are giving the ministry. I'm talking this morning through this passage through Judas's actions to those who 
act like Him. I'm talking to those who are acting like Him, and I want to ask you, do you recognize yourself? You say, I'm not a Judas. Well, then stop acting like one. If you're not one, then repent of that kind of behavior. But if you are one, do you recognize that before it's too late for you? Will you repent of attacking people who have loved you and told you the truth? The darkness of a betrayer. The brightness of the beauty and the glory of the one who was betrayed. Tonight we'll come back, look at verses 51 through 56 and continue to see the glory of our Savior. But let me just ask you as we finish this morning, are you a true disciple? How do you explain Judas Iscariot? Explain him as the Bible does, that it's possible to know a lot about Jesus and not know Him. It's possible to witness a lot of what Jesus does, but you don't know Him. It's possible to hear His teaching, but you don't know Him. It's possible to be with His disciples, but you don't know Him. I'm asking not whether you know about Jesus, not whether you profess to love Jesus, maybe even with kisses. I'm not asking whether you've witnessed Him do marvelous things. I'm not asking whether you've ever heard His teaching. I'm asking, are you His follower? Do you know Him? Does He know you? Would He own you? Do you love Christ? If you do, you love His people. If you do, you love His church. If you do, you love those who have loved you by investing in you. Do you love Christ and His people and your teachers? Do you love as Christians love? Are you known by your associations with the people of God? Or perhaps I'm talking to someone this morning, you've begun to stray. And as you've begun to slide and stray, now we're witnessing these strange friendships. These strange alliances that always occur where there's this mutual hatred. And it might be that even your friendships are not with people that you know personally. It's amazing. We live in a world right now where you can form strange friendships that center around YouTube information or blog information or book information. If we look at those whom you most resonate with whom you give your ears to and your heart to, I mean, you're receiving their counsel, would we discover it's not your church and the elders of your church. It's these strangers who are giving you information that your elders would never give you. How did you end up in such a place with these strange friendships? Are you loyal to the people of God? Do you realize that what you do with God's people, you do with Christ? As much as you've done this with the least of my brothers, I tell you, you've done it unto me. What you do with Christ's people, you do with Jesus. Finally, whether you are among the loyal or the disloyal, you need to know this. God is undefeated. His decrees are never thwarted. His will is never nullified. His glory shines even when sinners take counsel against Him. Jesus is the victor in this garden, not the victim. We'll see tonight. He's in full control. Even when they think they have a measure of control, He is in full control. And what you and I need to know is either we're going to build our lives on Him who is the cornerstone or He will become to us the stumbling stone. You will either be saved by Him or your life will be destroyed on the truth that is found in Him. And one day, you'll be judged by the very truth that you rejected. And so the heart of myself and this church and anyone who loves you is to say, would you, would you look to Christ with a sincere heart that bows to His authority not, not aggressive in your disputation. Not aggressive in your dislike. Well, that's for people who perish. 
Would you bow your heart and your knee at His Lordship and say, I will follow you because I believe you're the Son of God and the only Savior for people like me. And the people of God would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity today to consider the darkness of Judas's sin, the darkness of the sins of those wicked Jewish religious leaders, the darkness of the sins of the pagans who would be willing to go along with injustice because it served their own purposes. But against that dark backdrop, giving us the glory of Your Son shining like the sun in its full strength. We see His love. We see His majesty. We see His dignity. We see His patience. We see that He speaks the truth even to those who would seek to silence Him. We see, Lord, that He He knows all things and He knows those things perfectly. And with that full knowledge, marched to the cross, endured the suffering and the indignities that went along with that and led to that tree. And He did all of this to save us who could not be saved any other way. And now, Lord, having been saved, we love You. We love Him. And we love each other. And so may You work in our hearts and lives in such a way that what we represent is loyalty to Christ and the truth and His people. And what we represent is love for truth, even when it confronts us and corrects us. Not bowing up against it and growing bitter toward it, but rather receiving it humbly and thankfully and being grateful even for words that are spoken to us that we would not want to hear, but that we need to hear. Would you produce in us hearts that give you glory by their humility. May you save today and encourage today and feed your church today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.